Okay, folks, we're back. I'm here with uh, Representative Ivy Svanholtz. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people wonder how to say that. Svanholtz, yeah. Svanholtz. It's Spon- easier to say than to spell. Right. It's, yeah. yeah I, I write a lot, you know, for my column, and whenever I get to your name, I have to, like, it's S-P-H-O-N-O-L-Z, right? S-P-O-H-N-H-O-L-Z. Oh, See, I've gotten, like, Machiki. I've gotten M-I-C-C-I-C-H. I've gotten pretty good at It's an H-N-H sandwich. Okay, I guess so. You got to think about it. Anyways, when I'm writing about you, I have to go back and check every time. Thank you for checking. I appreciate that. Because one of my biggest things is not getting anybody's name wrong. So you, um, let's see here, you were appointed to fill the seat of Max Gruenberg when he passed away, right? That's right, in 2016. I, I got a story about him. Uh, there was a bill years ago I was trying to oppose, mm-hmm. and I called, this is way before I was really involved, really involved. I was kind of a little bit involved, but I called his office and. Like a next, a couple hours later, like dude called me back. Mm-hmm. Like he called me back himself. Yeah. And was like, hey, you called, what's going on? And I'll never forget that because normally it's hard to get somebody to, you know, call you within a couple hours, call me back. Mm-hmm. That's impressive. Yeah. So that's my. He was a good guy. He was a really good guy. So you were appointed and then you've since won a couple elections. Where, where do you, you're east, kind of east Anchorage? Or yeah, I'm not? in east Anchorage, um, sort of a little bit east and west of Boniface from the Glen Highway to Tudor Road. So it's a it's a long north-south triangle of, uh, you know, Wonder Park, Nunaka Valley, College Gate, Reflection Lake neighborhoods, all, you know, great neighborhoods in East Anchorage. Good, good door-to-door experience. It's great door-to-door experience. It's even better for me because I grew up in, uh, you know, in the north part of the district. And then, you know, I was uh, pregnant with my second child in Nanaka Valley. And now I've lived in College Gate for about 14 years. So, you know, I have a lot of history in the district. And it's fun getting to know my neighbors in a different kind of way now. So you were, you were born here in, in, in Anchorage, not here? No, Juneau, I was but... born out in Nebesna, which is in what is now the Wrangell St. Elias National ne- Park. Nebesna? Nebesna, yeah. I've never even heard of that. Yeah, it's um, it's up near Slana. You uh, pass it when you drive up to Toke. Uh, so, I've heard of Slana. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a it's across the street, just south of Slana. It's not really a full town. It's really now in a national park. But when I was born there, it was BLM land, and my parents were uh, living so off we, the land. Why were you born? What were they doing? Were they just like hippies? They or? were hippies living off the land. No way. My mom always just tells me it was a different time in the seventies, Ivy. So. Yeah, it Where was January, uh, January in the interior in a dry log cabin when I was born. My I was going to say, were you born parents, in like yeah, like a cabin yeah, or something? It was a dry log cabin with an outhouse. Yeah. Where were your parents from? Are they? From- well, um, my mom is originally from Massachusetts, and uh, my uh, my birth father was from uh, Idaho. But my I was actually adopted by my father uh, by a. a a second, a later father um, uh, named Ron Sponholz when I was young. So I actually don't know my birth father that well. Hmm. Um, but uh, my my father, Ron Sponholz, uh, wa- came to Alaska when he was 11 and uh, his family homesteaded outside of Talkeetna um, off of Lane Creek, which is up the railroad tracks from Talkeetna. So you're probably pretty comfortable in like the, uh, the bush, right? I can chop some wood. I can drive a snow machine and an ATV and... Um, you know, haul water up the hill. I can do all those things. Yeah, it's like the full full Alaska experience right there. Absolutely. Um, I think, 
you know, a lot of people in um, urban Alaska um, don't realize the magic and the splendor of uh, our rural parts of the state. Mm-hmm. And there's yeah. a beauty and a magic um, to rural Alaska, but also, um, you know, an intensity and a seriousness that's really uh, interesting and important. I mean, there's nothing like being out in 40 below in the interior to make you uh, appreciate the, uh, you know, the um, the uh, vulnerability of humans in the north part of the of the world. Yeah, it's a little more comfortable here in, in your office right now. With You're on the fourth floor, and I got to say, mm-hmm. I've been doing these podcasts for a while, mm-hmm. and um, I've been all over the Capitol, and the fourth floor is where the action is. There this is, is a lot of action on the fourth floor. A lot of people here on the fourth floor. Yeah. If I ever get elected, I'm going to be. I'm going to almost insist I'm on the. Even you, you're on kind of the end, mm-hmm. right by the. Is that the fire escape? The fire or? escape out the back. Yeah. So you can't just you can't you can't enter through there, right? You have. To I go can. Through. I can enter and exit through the back right. door. Ooh. So so you you're you're lucky. I am. It's also a very nice for office for us because uh, in this office, uh, not only do I have a window, but my staff have a window, which for me is really important. Hey, you have a you're, you have a very awesome view. Yeah, it's I'm looking a, out your window right now, mm-hmm. and this is it's so funny how every office is different. I mean, no no two offices are the same. Some are like yours is kind of narrow, like longer and narrower. Mm-hmm. And um, I was just in Senator Giesel's office, and she had, she obviously has the Senate President's office, mm-hmm. but. Yeah, all the offices here. Are, yeah. were, you, were you here before or did you yeah. move? Yeah, I've been here for the last two years and we got to stay in our same office, which is really nice. Right, so after the, the organizational issue, mm-hmm. everyone, until they organized, stayed in the previous office or the previous office of their predecessor. Right, predecessor. the office of their predecessor, yeah, so you they had, were new. You had people like Sarah Vance who were in Paul Seaton's office, which is like the huge finance. The largest office on the fifth floor. So yeah. some, some people are, uh, I think some people were not happy to move. After the organization, because I mean, if it was me, I'd I'd want to stay in the big office. Well, I think you know one of the things that that um, that that sort of illustrates is some of the inequities that there are in the building as it relates to office space. I mean, I think it's a bit problematic that if you are uh, you know in a, if you're a majority member, you get a bigger office than does a, a minority member. Really, all of the offices should be the same size. Um, and that's something that would require at this point, however, a huge renovation of the building. It would be hugely expensive to yeah. do and is probably the reason that um, there is some inequity in these offices, uh, which is, uh, I think, really um, not ideal. Uh, our offices, uh, just for those that are listening at home, is is still fairly modest. It is not a, a palatial office, um, but it's enough that we can work uh, we can work through. But I remember coming and visiting uh, people in the past who were, you know, when I was, um, you know, a regular citizen coming to the legislature, like a lot of Alaskans do, to educate legislators on uh, topics and seeing some of the really, really tiny offices in contrast yeah. with some of the huge offices. Um, and the inequity is really stark. I, mean, I think it's fair, to, you know, like the Senate president or the speaker, I mean, they have more staff, so they probably would need a little. But um, I, I'd love to go back and kind of Talk, they're probably not around anymore, but the, who designed the... I'm sure it was designed with that intent of, of certain people are going to have... Well, some some people, like you said, the speaker and the Senate president, they, they have more staff, but they also have meetings of their majority coalitions. And mm-hmm. so they need larger offices. And even when 
2016, when I was appointed, I was a part of the minority, um, and the minority leader um, has a larger office as well, and that's designed to to accommodate caucus meetings, where you have a, a large group of people that come together, which makes really a lot of sense. But I think the the inequity and in some of the the rest of sort of like the line members of the legislature's offices really has more to do with sort of the legacy of a different kind of value back in the old days when, um, you know, I think to the victor went all of the spoils and it's old school political attitude. Um, And I think that uh, if we were to design this building today, we might do it differently. And that's sort of reflective. You could definitely see that in uh, we're, we're not there anymore, but the, there was the, the legislative information office that was downtown uh, on Fourth Avenue, some people called it the Taj Mahaker uh, well, after actually, it had been renovated. I'm working on a story on that right now as yeah. we speak about the uh, the costs of of that and yeah. the extra rent, the the you know quadruple yeah. or quintupling of the rent, yeah. and then you know the the whole lawsuit and now the new. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's been tens of millions of dollars total between the old LIO and Fourth Avenue and the new one they bought for twelve million plus mm-hmm. millions in renovations. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a huge amount of money that's been too spent. much money was spent on that building that Fourth uh, Avenue Legislative Information Office. But one thing that I think that they did right in that building um, is that they made all of the offices the same size. It didn't matter if you were a majority member or a minority member; you had the same size office, and that was one of the things that they did right. Um, you don't, you don't think we... a little bit like you know if if you're kind of on the little bit of reward for being you don't think that's good. I don't think it's necessary. I think that, you know, in most modern offices, I worked uh, in the nonprofit field for the last 20 years before I came to the legislature. Offices were about the same size for everybody, and we managed to work it out just fine, with the exception of a few leaders that might, you know, need to accommodate team meetings in their office. Uh, the, the LIO, our former LIO, um, all of the offices were the same. And if you needed to have a larger meeting, you checked out a conference room, and it worked just fine. So yeah. no, I don't. I don't think that that's really appropriate. So you, um, you, you have been in the minority and the majority. Yeah, um, which is interesting because I guess you were in the minority for a couple years. No, then... I was in the minority just actually for one year. So I was appointed March tenth, twenty sixteen, uh, to replace Max Grunberg um, after his untimely passing, and I spent basically that year, which included the regular session. Um, you know, there was about two months left in the regular session. And then we had several special sessions that year because of our fiscal crisis. So I spent um, that that whole year in the minority Uh, here, mostly in in Juneau. We didn't uh, we didn't really make it back to Anchorage permanently until, you know, into July that year. I I remember that because I I ran in 2016 for the Senate. And I remember, you know, thinking, you know, for the people who are running against an incumbent, you know, um, I wasn't. But the, um, everybody was excited because they were they couldn't campaign. You know, they were based stuck in Juneau for the whole most That's of right. summer. That's right. So when you got appointed, there was three what three names went to Governor Walker. Mm-hmm. Were, were you how'd you were you kind of how'd you feel? Were you like no idea, or did you feel good about it? Or um, you know, I think that um, before I came to the legislature, I think that like a lot of people, I had this idea that the people that came in. The people that were elected in the legislature were the best and the brightest in the state of Alaska, <laughs> and um, that uh, my uh, my being uh, selected was a bit of a long shot. Um, but I I had received a, you know really a lot of encouragement from people that I respected a lot 
uh, to put my hat in the ring. And it was sort of, it was a time when I didn't feel I was quite ready, but um, because my daughters hadn't finished, you know, my daughters hadn't finished high school. Um, but opportunity only, you know, the windows of opportunity like this only come along every once in a very great while. And so I decided to sort of, you know, throw my hat in the ring. And um, I mostly just kept getting surprised when I made it through to the next step. You know, there's you uh, you apply to the party uh, uh, to the person of the person uh uh, which um, district, that uh, they membered the, the person that represented that district. You apply to that party, you get interviewed by representatives of that district in that party, and then th- that that group forwards on names to the governor, three names to the governor. Um, I interviewed with the governor. I interviewed with members of my now uh, caucus um, at that time as well. And I, you know, was sort of you know pleasantly surprised that I just sort of my name kept going how'd along. You, how'd you find out? Did you get a phone call? Or? I got a phone call from Governor Walker no um, on that Monday night. It was about six o'clock. And I remember thinking that night, oh, gosh, you know, he was going to call today. He was going to make a decision today. It's after five o'clock. He's picked somebody else. Off I go with the rest of back to my regular life, which is just fine. I had a great job. I um, was a director of development for the Salvation Army Alaska. I found really a lot of meaning in that work. It was a job with a statewide scope. I had a great staff that worked for me. Um, and as I said, you know, my daughters hadn't graduated from high school at that point in time. So I was like, oh, all right, back to normal. No problem. And then about an hour later, the governor called me and uh, and uh, said that he'd like to appoint me. And uh, about 10 minutes later, uh, Representative Chris Tuck, who was the minority leader at the time, called me and uh, we agreed that I would start on Thursday morning. I told him that I needed a couple of days to shut down my life. Wow. Um, yeah, that, that Chris Tuck's my rep. Oh, he's yeah, great. He's a, he's a hardworking guy and uh, was uh, fantastic to work with as I worked to transition into the legislature. I had kind of a a weird first day because the first day that I started uh, was the day that the operating budget was on the floor. So, oh, you know, I flew into the legislature. I flew into Juneau on Wednesday night and, you know, got in at like 945 and um, the next morning, I was here at the office at 745 in the morning. I was sworn in um, and then went on to the floor, you know, at 1030 and started the operating budget. I didn't leave the building that night until about 3 a.m. Um, oh. And I borrowed uh, Jonathan Christ Tompkins, Representative Christ Tompkins, uh, trek to drive home. I, I didn't even know the way to my apartment that I was staying at. It was a very so what, what interesting your, day. What did your husband and kids say when... All this happened where oh. they like, oh my gosh, my, yeah. my mom and my wife's now a representative. Yeah. Um, I think they were just um, so excited for me, so proud. Um, you know, my, uh, my, uh, my mom and my husband and uh, my daughters were all just, you know, so excited for me and uh, incredibly supportive. My mom flew down with me for my swearing in, which was really meaningful to me. That's nice. Yeah, my mom was in the legislature briefly um, in 1989 oh, really? when I was 16 years old. And uh, for how long? She was just there during a runoff. Um, 
there was a tie election and there wasn't a legislative, there wasn't a legal way to resolve a tie at that time in law. Now we know that if you get to an absolute tie, there's actually uh, a, a coin toss. It says um, game of lot. Yeah, it says game of so lot, they, but it's they, all, it's been a coin toss traditionally. That's how Representative Bryce Edgman mm-hmm, originally. Carl Moses, Carl that's Moses. right, yeah. I, I was with the LeBon Dodge deal. Mm-hmm. It was going to be a tie. I was yeah. very seriously pushing for... Uh, Three rounds of dice throwing with, with, <laughs> with me providing commentary, kind of that play would have been play, very fun. Get get some you know mm-hmm. do some charities, have the big mm-hmm. have the dice on the big screen. That would have been a know, good time. That would have been a good time. Do a little commentary. Uh, that'd be, that'd be yeah, great. Yeah, we didn't have that back then. Uh, any of those options, and so there was a runoff election. And while that runoff election took place, uh, my mom was appointed. Uh, she actually got uh, the phone call from the governor on my 16th birthday. Um, was that, so I was remember that, uh, that very Cooper? clearly. Yeah. 89, yeah. Interesting guy. You don't really hear much about him. He, he's kind of an anomaly. He's left the state now, I believe. He's, yeah, so. he's, he's, yeah, he, he left, served yeah. one term, and yeah, he's now gone back to, I think, Texas, but uh, so, I don't know for sure. So you, you um, obviously you applied to be, did you have plans to run for the legislature at some point? or? Uh, no, I didn't have plans to run. Uh, I had sort of decided that that probably wasn't in my future and was totally fine with that. I You know, I'd been working um, in a different kind of community service, working for nonprofit organizations for the last, you know, couple of decades and really find a lot of meaning in that work. I worked for organizations like Abuse Women's Aid in Crisis, and I worked for the Salvation Army, and I worked for the University of Alaska. Um, And each of those uh, organizations, you know, I I was a fundraiser, and so I got to help... um, you know, sort of serve as the connector between the community and the organization to try to grow the mission, you know, the impact of those organizations to deliver on their mission is really interesting work. Um, you I know, bet, yeah. I worked for the Salvation Army. We were in 19 communities throughout the state of Alaska. And so I got to fly all over the state of Alaska meeting volunteers and community members that were trying to serve those most in need. That was pretty, pretty cool work. Yeah. So earlier you said, uh, uh, like many people, and you're, you're right until I think maybe you you get here that it's the the best and the brightest. <laughs> um, you're kind of a bit of a rising star here. I think a lot of people know you. You're pretty well known, um, democratic circle in, in all circles. So, well, it's kind of you to say. Well, I mean that's that's I think that's it's, it's true. Um, there's been some talk about you maybe have having some ambitions for higher office. Is that some some people have been saying you you might run for the U.S. Senate? Uh, yeah, I'm not running for U.S. Senate. That's been the word on the street. Well, I think it sounds like that might be, you know, fun bar talk, but it's not anywhere in my plans right now to be running for U.S. Senate. I think I had to ask. I well, sure. I and I appreciate the opportunity to dispel the myth. So, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, we'll make sure we. I'll, I'll disseminate the, the response. <laughs> um, so you're kind of now they've organized, and that was must have been really frustrating. Three thirty days of no uh, organization. Yeah, it was a really difficult time. Um, I think, uh, you know, 30 days of uncertainty uh, for those of us in the legislature, it really felt like dog ears, but we'd dog ears, but it, it had felt we'd been feeling that uncertainty since November, really. It was clear that, you know, that enough seats changed hands that the, um, you know, the previous, you know, majority, we didn't have the votes, but neither really did the Republicans. And well, so we were was, sort of at a, a standoff. There was that um, very bizarre press conference the day after the election. Yeah. That I think um, 
probably created a lot of the, the problems that existed after that, where there, there was no room for any of the, all the positions were kind of given away and, uh, and, the, and their majority at the time, the Republicans, they had yeah. non-stever. So I think there was thought maybe somebody might go over, but at that point there was really no spots left. Yeah, I think that, I think that even more so than that, the fact that um, there, uh, you know, wasn't really a clear sort of vision and um, there wasn't a clear, a clear vision or strength in, you know, a vision that a growing number of people could get involved in, could get excited mm-hmm. about. Um, you know, our previous coalition, the, the 30th legislature coalition, we came together, you know, to try to make sure that you know, a fiscal plan, any fiscal plan that was passed was going to be, you know, really fair to all Alaskans. Um, and I don't think that, you know, our our belief that we needed to come up with a fair and responsible plan had really changed very much. I don't think that um, the Republicans that, you know, had a 21-person group as of, you know, November 7th had a very clear vision for what it is that they were trying to achieve. It wasn't um, – well, not the, having a vision makes it difficult for people to get excited about joining you. I was at the press conference, and there was – the question was asked. Mm-hmm. But what's the – Right. What's the vision? What, what are the <laughs> – there wasn't a lot of – and then one of the members wasn't even in the room. So I think that yeah. probably um, – I assume you guys were all watching, and I, most of you were probably watching it. And, we were. Um, I'm sure that kind of – must have been interesting to, to view. I was there and it was very kind of like, didn't really feel right. So it didn't feel stable. Yeah. It didn't, it didn't feel did, yeah. strong. Exactly. And it didn't feel like a team yet. Um, but so that, that was November. So yeah. De- December, January, February. So really it was three months of kind of uncertainty. That's right. Not it was three month. months of uncertainty for those of us in the legislature. Um, and unfortunately, sometimes to make really courageous and tough decisions. Um, it takes things being really, really uncomfortable. And I think that's sort of uh, what was required. Um, and ultimately, it was the governor's budget that forced our organization. Um, you yeah, know, it was right uh, after the budget came out. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I appreciate the idea you know, philosophically wanting to have a budget that balances. Frankly, it's a constitutional obligation in the state of Alaska to have a budget that balances. But, um, you know, a budget that includes basically $1.6 billion in cuts that could result in fifteen to 20,000 jobs lost as a result of it uh, that would decimate the ferry system, the university, education, healthcare in Alaska. That's the kind of thing that really coalesces people together. Um, and, um, and it well, did just that. Last night during the Senate State Affairs testimony on the PFD, the called the payback or the mm-hmm. repayment, um, the the you know obviously it's anecdotal in some level, but two to one of I think it was a hundred people or more testified, and it was two to one uh, against the repayment mm-hmm. because people started to kind of I think even some folks who were all about the PFD repayment now are, are saying, well, wait a minute, like hmm, like higher taxes on our local level. No ferry, you know, system. No, you know, cuts to education. Maybe they aren't as excited about it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's I, a trade-off. You know, I, higher PFDs, lower spending on government. That's right. And if you, um, when when we, you know, paying for those PFDs would also be spending down the earnings reserve. And spending down the earning reserve isn't just spending that money for one time. It's spending 
down the potential earnings that would have been, you know, you would have had on those on those those money. And if you're talking about two billion dollars and you're talking about six percent, six and a half percent earnings every year for the rest of sort of in perpetuity on that two billion dollars. That's that's a lot of money. Well, that's what some people um, I don't think a lot of folks realize that when, when Governor Walker vetoed the dividend in 2015, the amount of money it wasn't spent on, on government, it stayed in the earnings reserve. But over those three years, uh, there was hundreds of millions of dollars in earnings off of that money, which, I mean, that could pay, you know, what can that pay for? You know, how many troopers or teachers or professors or, or ferries? Yeah, that's right. I think uh, Senator Click Bishop has, uh, you know, has had a great statement that, you know, when, when the company's doing well, you can afford to pay out big dividends. But when the company's not doing well, you can't afford to pay See, out big uh, dividends. You know, I've been saying the same thing, you know, like Conoco or BP, when, when things are going mm-hmm. great, they have a bigger dividend. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in 2008, when Sarah Palin added $1,200, remember there was a two, 2000 the plus energy, the energy X. So, you know, prices of oil were 150. I mean, that's fine with me. You know, things are going really good. You know, yeah. <laughs> Give people a little extra, but that's true. Uh, that's true. Uh, although, you know, I mean, I think, um, just to be clear, I think that, um, you know, we also know that we need to continue to pay a dividend, that the dividends are really important. Mm-hmm. They're an important um, part of our culture and our economy for a lot of different reasons. One is they bring about 20% of Alaskans out of poverty every year. I've been one of those families that counted on the dividend to help bring my family um you know, help my family get caught up on bills. There was a time when uh, I was in high school, my parents got divorced really at the peak of the recession in the 80s. We had an underwater mortgage on a house. And, you know, we were living on child support while my mom went back to college. And, you know, we needed food stamps to help get through. I worked a job at Wendy's so that I could, uh, you know, continue to have, uh, you know, my dance lessons. Um, And every year when the dividends came, that's when we got caught up. Um, that's when I got my money for school clothes. Everybody else got their school clothes before school started. And me, I got an allowance to go spend at, you know, Value Village and Salvation Army. So, um, I'm really, really cognizant of that. The other thing is that the dividends are a really big economic driver in our state. They help drive jobs and infuse a lot of money into our economy, but we have to be really thoughtful now at a time when, um, when uh, the price of oil is low and we're not bringing in a lot of money about how we spend money. That said, you know, I I think that, you know, we need to make some choices about revenue as well. You know, we're still, we're, we're, we're still not getting as much for, we still basically selling our oil at a pretty low price in the state of, for the state of Alaska, which is a bit of a problem. So if we resolve some of that problem, we wouldn't have a fiscal situation as well. Um, I, I sort of, I really reject the governor's premise that it's a choice between dividends or a budget. I think that's a false narrative. I think we need to think bigger. And when you, you know, think about your household situation, if, uh, you know, one of you loses your job, the other one, you know, gets a job or you you pick up a side gig yeah. for a little while to figure it out. You don't stop feeding your children because, you know, you're because you lost your job. <laughs> you figure out a new way to pay for your children. Well, think, and that's how I feel about public education. We need to find a way to pay for it. I think it just in the, in the governor's I mean, case, it, it, it might be a false premise. But I mean, he's basically said no taxes, no changes to oil tax. I mean, he's so in, in that world, he's been pretty clear about and in his reality. And the, it's the dividends or the the cuts because he's been pretty clear about the um, income taxes or sales taxes or oil taxes. 
it's just it's interesting it's 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 for years i've been talking about how we used to balance our budget 100 dollars oil and you know we used to have 16 billion dollars more than that in the reserves and that's i was just watching bruce tangeman earlier the mm-hmm. revenue commissioner with the house finance committee and that that reserve accounts below two billion dollars right well you know um we need to make sure that we're not that you know we're not spending down the permanent fund earnings reserve i think you know one of the one of the things I've heard people say is, oh, we've got $16 billion in savings that we can spend. And I'd say, whoa, that's our kids' money, right? That's our kids and our grandkids and their grandkids' money for the future and the permanent fund. So I think we really need to protect that. But we also need to decide what kind of a state it is that we want to live in and figure out how to get there. You know, when uh, you know when my husband and I were young adults, we didn't say, gosh, we're going to accept mediocrity for the rest of our lives and continue to live a poor, you know, to be, to be poor and, you know, to be sort of scrimping and saving. We said, okay, what kind of a life do we want to make for our children? What kind of a life do we want to have uh, for ourselves? And we figured out how to get there. And that's kind of where Alaska is right now. We need to figure out what it is that what it is that we want to be as a state, right size that, make those decisions. Are there ways that we can be more efficient? Absolutely. I think we should be trying to find ways to deliver services more effectively, to be more disciplined. Um, but we also need to figure out how just frankly to pay for things like education and our marine highway system and things like that. What you know, at a time when we're you know spending 1.2 billion dollars a year, or we're we're allowing 1.2 billion dollars a year in per barrel oil tax credits to be deducted, and then we're talking about you know re- dramatically reducing public education and dramatically you know reducing our ferry system, we're, there's cuts 21 million dollars in cuts to public safety. I think that's just a false narrative, and it's time to be more creative and. Frankly, the governor's not the only person who gets to say in this. And last week in Anchorage caucus, there was hundreds and hundreds of people was, that came out there. and they were very clear about what they wanted. Yeah, I don't think anybody testified that I heard in favor. You, you, were, you were there the yeah, whole time, right? I so. was there. I was there for four hours and I didn't hear a single person say, absolutely good on the governor. Let, governor, let's go with those cuts. What they I said got, is, I, got, I um, want public safety. I want public education. Figure it out. I was there when the fire marshal showed up and mm-hmm. said it was, it was so packed yeah. that they had to get some people out. Yeah, because there were so many people that showed up. I think if there's one thing uh, that Governor Dunleavy has done a great job of, it's making the case for government. Because when you put on the table 1.6 billion dollars in cuts, there's no way that that's not going to piss off a broad range of people, and that's certainly what we've seen. There's something in that budget for everybody in Alaska to hate, and he's done a great job of of illustrating how important you know uh, how important local government is, how important public education is, how important our university is, how important our marine highway system. Is. Well, the co- the cost shifting. I think the big of all the things in there. I think the big takeaway for me is the cost shifting from local taxes, like the North Slope Borough, mm-hmm. Valdez, you know, taxes from the oil and um, and Anchorage. You're talking about uh, eliminating school bond debt reimbursement, which mm-hmm. would affect property taxes by a, a lot. I mean, that's that, right. That, that writes off some of that extra dividend. Over $300 million uh, in uh, in revenue in the, in the governor's budget is really pulling money away from local communities across the state uh, that really count on that money uh, through school bond debt reimbursement, through pulling the petroleum, uh, you know, the pro- petroleum property taxes and, and other kinds of funds across the state. There's also the fisheries the sweep, landing tax. The fisheries landing tax. There's also the clean, the clean sweep of uh, the power cost equalization fund, right, which yeah. is just really unacceptable. You know, rural Alaskans uh, pay outrageous prices for energy. And while we need to continue to work on energy independence for rural Alaska, and there's a lot of great opportunities to do that, ending power cost equalization is really not an acceptable well, Senator, solution. Senators Hoffman and Olson are not excited about that 
proposition. I can tell you the house isn't excited about that either. Um, yeah, the, uh, the the thing that really struck me was when Donna Ar- Arduin, the budget director who now identifies herself as an Alaskan, um, <laughs> we are us, you know, it's funny to watch, but Senator Machiki at one of the finance meetings asked her, you know, said in the peninsula, we've reduced our budget, we've done some things to balance our budget, we've worked very hard, and this proposal would, would have a huge impact on that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, local taxes. Like, what's your comments about that? And I mean, she literally said, well, we don't, that's not our business. We don't, we don't. Right. We're she had, she had about three or four different ways to say, that's not my problem over and over yeah, and yeah, over again. Yeah, it was, again. it was incredible. It was really incredible to watch her say that. That's to, right. But for, for those of us that are elected officials in the state of Alaska, this is our problem. We do care. We have to deal with the consequences of the decisions that are made. And so for us, this is not an academic discussion. These are our communities. These are our neighbors and our friends. And these are our children. This isn't academic and is irresponsible. Well, she, she works with Art Laffer, the Laffer Curve. So mm-hmm. I think it might be academic to them. You know, I think All it is sudden, academic they're in, they're in to charge her. Of, yeah. Of, I I sort of feel like Donna Arduin has come to Alaska like a consultant and she's led the governor's OMB team and uh, through, you know, her consulting sort of process to evaluate our budget to come up with structural ways of reducing the budget without, um, you know, allowing any meaningful conversation about what the uh, what the implications of it are. And what I can't uh, fathom is how Governor Dunleavy thinks that any of this is acceptable, that the kinds of things that are proposed in the budget are acceptable. They're not, you know, they impact rural Alaska disproportionately. They completely undermine his campaign promise to invest in public safety. He said he was going to make sure that we had the right number of troopers for public safety. And his budget actually takes $21 million out of public safety. It's cutting the VPSO program, which may need some retooling in order to be more effective. But certainly we need to make sure that rural Alaskans and Alaskan natives get the same kind of public safety that those of us in, in urban Alaska get. Um, I I don't understand how he can abide this. So you think the big, I mean, um, and, and if there's always some at the end about the budget. This year, it's probably going to be amount of the budget versus the amount of dividend. Is that? I think that's going to be part of the discussion, yeah. Um, and I think that, um, you know, what I'm hopeful about is that, um, you know, elected officials, whether they be in the House or the Senate or whether they be urban or rural, you know, we all understand how important, you know, public education and public safety and transportation are to our communities across the state. And it's my hope that we'll come together in unity and stand up for Alaskans and stand up what's for what's right. Well, Resident Svon Holtz, I'm very happy to uh, do the podcast with you. This is a um, great day, huh? Great Friday. It's a beautiful afternoon. It was great talking with you, Jeff. Thanks, thanks again. We'll see you around. Absolutely. Anytime. Thank All you. Right, folks, if you have any ideas for podcasts or want to do a podcast, get a hold of me. We'll, uh, we'll see you next time. Landline.